Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we ask that you give us insight and clarity. And Lord, we know that on, our, on my words alone, God, we will be wasting our time. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak powerfully through your spirit, that we would repent of our sins, that we would trust in Christ, and that we would glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't know this about me, I have two brothers. I have a younger brother and an older brother, which makes me a, a middle child. <clears throat> and my older brother, his name is David. He lives in a city called Monroe, up north, kind of uh, west of Seattle. And uh, he builds buildings, and he's an iron worker, and it's great. Uh, but he was pretty close to me growing up, and there was just times as an older brother, he was a typical kind of older brother who would sometimes, like, be embarrassed by his little brother, and sometimes he would tell my mom, make Aaron change, he's going to embarrass me wearing that. And there were just some times where I kind of felt like growing up, and he wasn't always the nicest brother. But one time we were playing just community basketball league. I, I wasn't a big basketball player. Um, I was really good at hockey. I loved baseball. And we were into golf and tennis. But I was like, oh, sure, I'll try a basketball. Wasn't that good. And so because of that, I made that bench feel real warm. You know what I'm saying? Because I didn't play much. My older brother, uh, you think I'm tall. He's even taller than me, right? So he was pretty good at basketball. He practiced a little bit more than me. And so there was one game we were playing, and I was riding the bench for a while, and my older brother, like right in the middle of the play, right in the middle of the game, just walked up to the coach and kind of like, you know, I think he was in eighth grade and I was in seventh grade. So imagine that some of you are eighth graders walking up to your coach and saying, Coach, you sit me, play my brother more. Play my brother. And the coach was kind of startled and didn't really know what to do, and so he's like, Well, no, hey, looks at me and kind of looks at the clock. He's like, just go play. We'll figure it out. And, and my brother's like, no. Plants his feet. And my coach calls timeout. And, you know, I, I forget what happened. He might have put me in for a few minutes and took me back out because I'm no good. But in that moment, even though my older brother at times would say some things that would be hurtful, and at times um, kind of pretend like we weren't friends at school, I knew that I would always be proud to call him my brother. 
Because I, I do know that he cared about me. And I do know that even though we all have our bad days and we wake up on the wrong side of the bed, um, my older brother still to this day is a, is a great guy. I love him. Uh, I know that even though every single time when I call him, he answers the phone by saying a very derogatory name towards me, I know that he really does love me. And if for nothing else, sometimes I tell my wife, I'm like, basketball, when I was in the seventh grade. And she knows what I'm talking about. I say all that because in this passage, we get a little glimpse into uh, the life and the ministry of Jesus. When I was in school growing up, we had these assignments called collages. And what you had to do is you had to bring a bunch of magazines and you cut out a bunch of things in the magazine. Do you guys do this maybe still? Okay. Maybe Abby's looking at me like she agrees. And you would kind of get some glue stick and you put it and you make this whole big collage of something. And what we see in this passage in Hebrews chapter 2 is imagine like the author of Hebrews is making a big collage of who Jesus is. And what we see in this collage is that ultimately, if you want, if you want a big point, here it is for you. In Hebrews chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, here's what, here's what we want to talk about. That Jesus became like us in order that we could be forgiven. Jesus became like us in order to be forgiven. And what we're going to see, guys, listen, Jesus is proud to call us brother and sister. Jesus, in a much more better way, in a much more meaningful way, in a much more sacrificial way, doesn't just say, hey, bench me so that my brother can play. But you know what we see? We see Jesus condescending into humanity in order that he can make us adopted sons and daughters. Hey, really quick, it's a, a small point of application. The wonder and the glory and the beauty of the gospel is that God takes enemies and makes them into his children because of what Christ has done. So here's what I want to see tonight. Jesus becomes like us in order that we can become forgiven sons and daughters. And like I mentioned, there's a collage. And so imagine there's a lot of different things about Jesus we could talk about, but I want to talk about three unique ways that Jesus ministers to us, why Jesus became like us. And so I want to just mention really quickly, we'll go through these kind of quick. But one, we see in this collage of Jesus that Jesus is the source Jesus is the victor. And lastly, we see that Jesus is the curse. And you can add of our salvation. Jesus is the source of our salvation. He's the victor of our salvation. And he is the curse of our salvation. So look down with me again at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Look what it says here. For it was fitting that he... Now that he... Every time you read the Bible, you should always try to figure out who was that... Who was being talked about here. And if you kind of scroll back up in the previous verse, you see at the end of verse 9, so that by the grace of God, he might taste that for everyone. So in essence, the author of Hebrews is still talking about God. We can assume God the Father or just the, the Trinity, however you want. And I think it's really, really important that we don't miss the little details that we see here in verse 10. Go and look down with me again. For it was fitting that he, God for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. 
Now, the passage right before the one we're reading is all talking about how Jesus' death on the cross was a type of substitute. Sometimes your teacher isn't there, whether they are sick, or if you're not homeschooled, you don't understand this, right? If you're homeschooled, like, you're just your parents or your teachers. But sometimes you go to school, and you get to class, and lo and behold, it's not your teacher. It's someone else, right? It's someone in the place of your teacher. And when we look at the cross, here's what we are trying to imagine, the same type of substitute, that that's where we rightfully deserve to be because of our sin. But Jesus took that. And here's what we read in verse 10, that the God who has made everything, great prepositional phrases here, for whom and by all things exist, the cross was made so that he can bring many sons, we can even add, and daughters to glory. Middle schoolers, God's purpose and the good news of Jesus and the gospel is that he wants to make you a son and a daughter of his. Can I just add really quick? Sometimes well-intentioned people talk about every single human being being a son and a daughter of God. We're all children of the Lord. May I just push us a little bit past that idea? I have children of my own, right? I love my four daughters. But even when I look to my nephews and my niece, and I have a, a very great love for them as well, it's not the same. It's not the same. And so let me just tell you, those who are in Christ, who are trusting in Jesus as the substitute, those who have become born again into God's kingdom, this is the children that is being talked about here. And so let me just tell you, God does see a difference between his covenant children in Christ and the rest of his general creation. And the purpose of the gospel, of why Jesus left heaven to come down to be a man, is to take all of us image bearers who have warred against God, who have turned our back against God, and say, even though you curse me, I'm here to make you a family member. I'm here to adopt you in. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because listen, if you are not a son and daughter of Christ, in essence to be written out of God's will, that means you have judgment coming for you. And so the author of Hebrews begins with a very startling thing, right? He goes on to say, in bringing many sons to glory and should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In essence, Jesus found himself to be the perfect pioneer of our faith by his suffering on the cross. If you imagine for a second Moses, who was like the greatest leader in the Old Testament for God's people, he led the people out of slavery into freedom. He was the pioneer. He is the one who kind of made the way for the Israelites to get out of Egypt and into the promised land. But does anyone know that Moses never actually made it to the promised land? The law can never get you there. Only Christ can take you into the promised land. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the perfect source of our salvation. He is the true pioneer. He is the one who blazes the way 
for us to be made children of God. Now, I say all this because I want you to look at this verse with me. Verse 12, it says this. He's quoting here in the Old Testament, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Guys, I cannot tell you how wonderful this verse is when you understand what it's saying. Jesus is proud to sing our praise because we are his brothers and his sisters. And the reason why Jesus does this is because he is the source of our salvation. Verse 11, look down, what does it say? For he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and those who are sanctified, Christians, all have one what? Say it aloud source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. How many of you, don't want, you don't have to say it out loud, but you can just be honest. How many of you have ever been ashamed of something that your sibling or your friend was doing? Yeah, I said you don't have to say it out loud, but you all raise your hands anyways, right? Yeah, right? People who we love, you know, even sometimes my kids will go to someone's house and they say something like completely, and you know, people are gracious because they're little kids, but like, you know, I was at a meeting the other day, and this wasn't my kids, so um, I can share this story. This little boy, like, whispered into his mom's ear, and she started laughing. And I don't know why the mom told the little boy to ask this guy, why don't, why don't you ask him? And the guy, this little boy was like, why are you bald? You know, and it's like, he was, like, a little older than, like, what you expect. I mean, I guess, like, a four-year-old, I can get that, but, like, like a six- or seven-year-old, it's like, that seemed a little... Weird to say out loud, right? If that was my kid, I'd be a little ashamed of that. You know, sometimes my youth pastor would come to my school when I was in high school, when I was in middle school, in high school. And if I saw him coming from a distance, I didn't really want him to know, or I didn't want people to know that I was with him. And so I'd try to go in the building somewhere. Sometimes I had friends who, are, who I knew were like those really kind of unique Christians who always wanted to sing Christian songs and read their Bibles. And yeah, they were kind of my friends at youth group, but when it came to school, I don't really want to be with them that much. And the good news of Jesus is that for all of us, because he is the source, he is the one who sanctifies Every single one of you, I'm proud to call you. I'm not ashamed to call you brother or sister. So let me just tell you right now, if you've ever experienced the hurt of someone not thinking that you're cool enough or that you, they don't want to be your friends, people just turn their back on you, let me just tell you right now, in Christ, God delights over you. And he loves you. And he thinks you are the cast pajamas. That's, that's, that's awesome. The more than that, Jesus is not just the source, he's the victor, right? So in this collage, he goes on to say, if you could look down with me past these verses, in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So in essence, if Jesus wants to be our sibling, if he wants to invite us in the family, he looks down and sees that the children have flesh and he says, in order to make them sons and daughters of the Most High King, I must go and also 
become a human. Can I just tell you that one of the most incredible things ever, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is his incarnation. Now that's, some, that's maybe a big word, that's something you haven't heard, but anytime we refer to Jesus becoming a man, we, we are talking about the incarnation. Now let me ask you guys a question. You should all know this, okay? Eyes on me. What month of the year do we typically celebrate the incarnation of Jesus? And what's in December? Christmas, right? We are celebrating the, the birth of baby Jesus, that God himself became a man. And I just want to tell you, shame on us for only limiting that to one month of the year. This is an incredible statement that Jesus, because he was not ashamed to call us brothers, he says, I must go down. He partook of the same things. And look what it says after that. That through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the victor over our two greatest enemies. Now, you might think you have enemies. Maybe you don't use that word that much. Maybe you use it like uh, kind of kidding around the friend. Oh, you're my enemy when you're playing basketball against them. But a real enemy is to never be taken lightly. You know, you know what they say? Never underestimate your enemy. Because an enemy is always looking to seek and destroy, to kill, to harm, and to hurt. But can I, can I tell you something really quick? A lot of us, we think that our biggest enemy in life is to have more friends, is to have a better, more cool life. We think the real enemy of life is having bad circumstances. And let me just tell you, middle schoolers, like uh, a good friend of mine told me this recently. He said, I wish I heard this more in middle school. And so let me tell it to you. Your biggest enemies in life are these two things. Death and the devil. Death and the devil. Death is not a reality that many of us think about. Do you want to know why? Because we live in an age of antibiotics. We live in an age where there's hospitals and ambulances. We live in an age where you go to bed and you wake up and you feel fine. But can I tell you that for most of humanity in history, many people would have watched multiple siblings die. Many women would have died in child, um, childbirth. Wars, famine, disease. And because we live in a, and I'm not saying that the society we live in is bad by any of those, by any stretch of the imagination, but because we live in a society where even when people are dying, we just wheel them away to a hospital so we don't have to see it. Can I just tell you, as middle schoolers, we do not consider enough the reality of death. Matter of fact, this is a very hard thing to preach to young people. But the Bible is very clear. Your biggest enemy is always death. And as one commentator says of this, he says this, listen, really important. The greatest fear is to die without the gospel. Not, not to scare you, not to put you into fear, not to shame you, but can I just tell you, none of us really knows if we'll be alive tomorrow. Tomorrow isn't promised. I could drive home tonight and get in a car accident. 
And because death is such a strong reality that no matter what, we all will die one day, the good news is this, that Jesus took care of that death. He became a man in order that he could vanquish death by his own death. By his own death, he says, guess what? In me, there's now resurrection. And for those who are in Christ, here's what death really is now. It's just the next step to my future resurrection. I don't have to worry about dying because I know that in Christ, I will live forever. But not only does Jesus conquer our first enemy, death, he also conquers the enemy of the devil. We have a holiday coming up that makes much light about this enemy, the devil, right? It also kind of makes issue of death too a little bit, but the devil, right? And, and I, I think a lot of times we think of the devil kind of like, so God's the good angel and the devil is the bad angel. Like there's this cosmic dualism where God is the light side of the force and the devil is the dark side. So if, you know, Luke Skywalker represents Jesus, Darth Vader represents, you know, the devil. And let me just say something. Don't ever compare God to that of the devil. They are not equal by any stretch of the imagination. God, in this very moment, if he, if he wanted the devil to be dead and to have no more influence, he would do it. God made the devil. But with that said, the Bible is very, very serious about how we understand the devil. They just listen to what the Bible says about our enemy. The devil is referred to as a roaring lion. The devil delights in perverting the gospel. And guess what? The devil delights in preventing people from hearing the gospel. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a destroyer. The devil in all ways and in all things is opposed to God, to his people. Therefore, he is opposed to God's very glory. There's this uh, guy, Michael Horton, and he writes a book, and he asked this really interesting question. He said, what would it look like if the devil were to rule a city? The devil was in charge of a city. Now, some of you guys might know this. The high schoolers didn't know this, but my kids, they like this movie called Descendants. Okay, I got, I got a few more nods here, okay? So, for some reason, when I think of if the devil was ruling a city, do you know that little island where, like, all the villain kids live in? It's, like, trashy and dark and there's crime. Like, that's what we think a city run by the devil would look like, I think. But here is um, what Michael Horton says about what a city would really look like. Imagine a city where every lawn is perfectly manicured, where everyone followed all the rules, where there was no fights, there was no crime, everyone had nice homes, full kitchens, and that there are churches everywhere. And in these churches, people were filled in them. But in these churches, instead of hearing the gospel, all they hear is how to be a good person, how to be nice. And they're never actually told about the true gospel. And I say all this because, because listen, the devil is very cunning. He is a liar. He makes you think 
that what you're believing is good and true, but really he's just deceiving you. The devil will do whatever he can to make you think that you are fine, you don't really need salvation, you don't really need help. These Christians keep saying you're a sinner, you're not that bad. But in fact, he is that bad. And the way Jesus destroys the devil is by this, that the devil can no longer do any long-term spiritual damage to us. One of my favorite songs, Before the Throne of God Above, there's this line we sing in it sometimes. When Satan tempts me to despair, Then it says, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. The devil may say, God doesn't love you. The devil may say, and maybe even your flesh may say it, how could you be a Christian after you do all those things? But Jesus, in taking on flesh, by dying on the cross, says no. You are my son, you are my daughter, you are my brother. I love you. All of that sin, I took it. It's mine. I paid for it. It's paid in full. Jesus is our victor. He looks at death and he laughs at it. He looks at the devil like a wounded animal, knowing that it's his mind, his short, shortcoming. But lastly, in this collage, we see this last point. Jesus the curse. Jesus, the curse. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What's interesting in this passage is we have this echoes of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the maybe the saddest part of the Bible. It's when Adam and Eve choose to sin against their heavenly father, their creator. And by doing so, they show that they doubt God's goodness. And God comes down and he gives a curse. And he says, hey, uh, woman, man, Satan, I'm going to make all this right. But somehow, one day, through the seed of the woman, that person is going to trample the devil. And so God gives a curse to his creation. But what we see here is that Jesus is reversing the curse. He's taking the curse upon him. And we see this because he defeats death by dying for his people. And let me just tell you really quick. Here's what Jesus is doing when he's on the cross. You ready for this? Imagine Jesus on a cross. He is taking and enduring all of your curse. You know, I was just talking to Blake today about this. What does it really mean to be cursed by someone? I think sometimes I think about it, um, what's the opposite of being blessed? And in, in the book of Numbers, we see this blessing, and it, and it goes something along, along the lines of this. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he, may he shine his face upon you. May he be gracious to you and his countenance be upon you. That's a blessing. Now think of the opposite of that. God curse you and turn his back on you and take away all of his presence from you. 
and work against you. That's what it means to be cursed by God. And that is what Jesus took on the cross that was rightfully ours. And the author of Hebrews, he brings up two big things here, priesthood and propitiation. Jesus is our priest, and because of that, we can go to him when we are tempted. Do you know why? Because Jesus was a man, do you want to know something? We'll talk about this a little bit later in a few weeks. He knows what it's like to experience all the things that we experience. I had a huge headache today because I didn't drink coffee. But you know what? Jesus knows what it's like to get a headache when you don't drink water. Jesus knows what it feels like to get splinters in your hands. Jesus knows what it feels like to be so sad that you feel like you can't cry anymore. And more than Jesus being our priest, he is the propitiation for our sins. So he is literally the sacrifice. He's the curse. And so I know I've said too much, but let me just wrap up my, my thoughts here. Guys, listen, this is really important. The idea that Jesus is our curse, that he took our sins, is the central idea to the good news of the message. Here's why. Because the gospel is your biggest answer in life. Your biggest need in life is not that you would experience self-actualization. It's not so that you get better circumstances. It's not so you get better grades or more money one day. Your biggest need in life is that you'd be made right with God, that you would have your sins forgiven. And it is only in Jesus where this is possible. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he's going to the book of Acts, kept telling people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And that's our message to you guys. Don't look at Jesus passively. He took the curse for us. He is the victor over sin and death and the devil. He is the one who brings us in and says, I am proud that you are my brother. And ultimately, what Hebrews is teaching us here is that Jesus became like us in order to save us. How incredible. And we marvel at this God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus and what he's done for us. I ask, Lord, now that you would lead us in a way that we would give praise and honor to Jesus. I pray that you would help us to consider our lives, that we would not just believe this with our heads, but that we'd fully trust in the message of the gospel and turn from our sins. God, thank you for these students. I pray that you bless them this week. I pray, Lord, that they would know that even when others may ignore them or reject them, God, you love them in Christ. You care for them. Thank you, God, for who you are and for what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.